Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, uh, what about what about the metrics, the measuring stick, the the way we measure up when we look at ourselves and we look at our our children. What is this idea of the metric that we use? The point I'm getting at here is the idea of normal. I want to make sure that I fit in. I want to make sure that I'm part of the group. I want to make sure that I measure up, that the metric is measuring me with and finds me in favor. You know, if you go to a hero movie, if you go watch a hero movie, one of the first things they do in the movie is they establish a villain. They have to create a villain that is outside of the normal citizen's view. It's out the the villain is bigger than the rank and file citizen can discern for themselves. The village is in threat because the villain is here. The village is in peril because the villain is here. So the rank and file, the normal people of the town, the normal citizen cannot see past the villain. By its very definition, a hero transcends that. A hero can come and bring a different outcome, can come and create a new narrative, a new outcome. The reason I bring this up is it's obvious humanity is going through an immense amount of change, immense amount of change. And there's one variable that's never associated with change, and that's the idea of, quote, normal, unquote. Normal means more the same. Normal means like everyone else, so to speak. And the reason I bring this up before this show is we want to be careful that we protect the uniqueness of who we are our authenticity, whether it be within ourselves as adults or within our children. Hey, I'm super stoked about tonight's episode. The topic tonight is solving the ADHD riddle, and our guest tonight is Connie McReynolds. We're going to bring Connie on in just a minute. But I, I did want to take one moment and say a big thank you a big thank you to Susan. Susan works behind the scenes here at New Human Living Global Podcast. If you've been on the show, you've interacted with Susan. <laughs> I want to give her a big thanks because, boy, howdy, she, the, the way she handles just so much information over and over and over and over and over again. We've just celebrated 10 years. We we just recently went out for a celebration dinner for our 10 years of working together, and we'll probably have 10 more, too. She's also my editor when I write books, 
and blogs and etc. I just wanted to give Susan a big shout out. Now, 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 what I really like about tonight's guest is Connie really looks at the metric of the of the person's ability to interact with their environment. She looks at the ability or inability for a person, really of any age, to be able to interact with their environment in a graceful way. Tonight's topic is the name of her latest book, Solving the ADHD Riddle, The Real Cause and Lasting Solution to Your Child's Struggle to Learn. I think we should get to it because we have a great interview lined up. Dr. Connie is a licensed psychologist and certified rehabilitation counselor with more than 30 years of experience in the field of rehabilitation counseling and psychology. She is the founder of Neurofeedback Clinics in Southern California, working with children and adults to reduce or eliminate conditions of ADHD, anxiety, anger, depression, chronic pain, learning problems, and trauma. She earned her PhD in rehabilitation psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, gaining valuable experience in the outpatient substance abuse treatment program at the Middleton VA Hospital at the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Neuropsychological Clinic at Meritor Hospital and the Medota Mental Health Institute. Dr. Connie's wholehearted mission is to bring hope and resolution for those who are struggling with the symptoms of ADHD, their parents and teachers, and you can learn more about Connie at ConnieMcReynolds.com. Join me in welcoming Connie to the show. Welcome to the show, Connie. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Solving the ADHD riddle. Now, ADHD, I'm sure, has had many fingers pointed at it over the years. And I always like to kind of uh, really clarify terms that we're going to use during the conversation can you give us just the 10,000-foot view of what ADHD is? Certainly. I do think that's a good place to start because the term ADHD gets bantered around a great deal. Um, anymore we hear, oh, you have ADHD or that child must have ADHD. And I don't think we really stop to define what we're talking about, and I think that's a very important component as we go forward today. And so... Uh, for those who haven't heard of ADHD, it's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and it's usually bandied around um, children who uh, really are kind of described as not paying attention. So they don't pay attention. Um, maybe they look disorganized. Maybe they lose their homework all the time. Uh, maybe they're just a lot of what's described as willful bad behaviors. This is a child that just doesn't know how to behave. Uh, this is the child who's in the grocery store and the mom is trying to control him or her and you know people are looking at the mom like there's something wrong with her what's wrong with you what's wrong with your child so it's really um, widely uh, dispensed I guess is a word we could use to describe a whole host of behaviors most of them negative 
in children. And I think it's really important that we have a conversation around what may be going on underneath this diagnosis and to really change the narrative, if we will, about what's happening here, to move away from what I've seen is a lot of kind of um, almost shaming or blaming of people that they're not paying attention. I spoke to someone on the phone just the other day who's in her 30s, and uh, she's recognized that she now has ADHD, and she said, you know, people at work just kind of blame her because when she has to ask people to repeat what they've said, uh, they tell her what she just needs to start paying attention more. And she was very discouraging. So I think that's why I really am glad to be here so we can have this conversation. Well, that's a good point because you talk about a woman at work. I mean, like you, you had hinted that typically ADHD is a, a label or a tag that we put on children. I, I guess I would say that fail to fit a model of conformity. I don't, I don't know if that's too strong, but a lot of, you know, it, it's like um, the rest of the class does this and your kid doesn't. So therefore, you know, kind of like an isolation um, term to say the kid needs to get in line, you know, like, but what about a, like a little runt chihuahua dog, you know, and he wants to nibble at your ankles and and it's kind of in his DNA and, and you might think him a little terror, but it's not really a personality disorder as much as it is kind of a ge genetic trait. What I'm getting at here is are some of the uh, behavioral tendencies um, can they be attributed to a genetic uh, element, like you know the Fighting Irish, and and where we have a a, a, a temperament or behavior that's associated with our our genes? Well, it's that's kind of an age-old question. I think certainly within the field of psychology, where I've been for you know many years. Is this a genetic predisposition? Is it environmental? And I say yes, <laughs> because it can be both. It can be one or the other. Uh, certainly there have been many times when I've run the assessment on children and I'm going over the results with the parents and one of the parents will say, well, this is just like his father, his mother's just like this, but it doesn't happen all the time. So there have been other families where there could be two, three, or four children in the family, and maybe there's one child that for some reason is behaving differently from the other, and that can be a real stressor in families if people aren't kind of tuned in to the fact that children can be wired differently because I've had situations where the child who isn't falling into line, like the rest of the family, gets targeted. And so that child then becomes the identified problem in the family, like this child can't get out of the bathroom, this child can't get out the door, and we're always changing everything up because of this child. And so that child gets targeted, even in the family. And that's a challenge for parents, it's a challenge for society to really take a step back from our rush to define and categorize people. I think it's how I think about it. Is that I think we need to step back from so much of that in thinking that I can pigeonhole someone into a category and that means I can understand what they're about. It doesn't mean that at all. 
just because someone has a label doesn't mean we know who they are, what they are, how they got there. And I think that's really where my work has come in in the last 30 years is let's move beyond that label to figure out what's going on with this person. And if we can figure out what's happening with this person, then we can implement a strategy that's effective for this person. And I like what you say there, this person, um, be it an adult or a child. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go door to door and... And or if you would imagine yourself visiting, just going down the street and with a crystal ball looking at the house dynamics inside the house, just to get a sense of the temperament or the environment. Like you've heard of uh, um, uh, sayings like children should be seen, they shouldn't be heard, or maybe every time at the dinner table, you know, Sally uh has a question her mother interrupts her and after you know years of that she just gives up um when we think about uh the the notion that a child has these struggles are they um um imprinted from from the family dynamic as much as they are uh, they might be unique to an individual child well, certainly family dynamics have a major impact on how children perceive themselves. And so, you know, in this the last case that I was identifying with the child who is different from the siblings, that child has an imprint of being different than or almost excluded from family structures. And so one of the parents would say, well, can we just leave this child at home when we go do other things because this child is just so disruptive? Would there be anything wrong with us just leaving this child at home? And that was actually a question posed to me. And it just really told the story of that composition of that family that this child was perceived as not belonging. And certainly that child is now picked up on that. Um, and so if you're not feeling like you belong at home and then you have the same trouble out in the world, where do you fit in? And I think that can be a real cause for concern, particularly when children get to the age of teenagers, if they have that sense of not being included in the family. Uh, it, I don't know that every family is wired that way, and I certainly have seen parents who are extraordinarily good with children who have picked up on these trends, have figured out how to navigate these auditory and visual processing problems without really ever being able to define what's going on. They just did it through trial and error because they were really invested. It's not that other parents aren't, but they were really invested in finding a solution for their child. And so when I, you know, advocate for the different types of interventions uh, after we've done the assessment so that we know what we're dealing with, then parents are empowered and some of them have already implemented some of these. I can still give them additional strategies and tips, uh, particularly for school. They have supportive teachers, which there are a lot of them out there who welcome the suggestions. There are others who push back a little bit and schools push back. So it's I've seen kind of up and down the spectrum of things that are working, things that aren't working, both at home and society and in school. And you kind of have to figure out, um, you know, what's the best pathway for my child or for me as an adult. Uh, there was certainly a situation where I had an adult man come in uh, he had lost multiple jobs, and you know he couldn't figure out why he couldn't hang on to a job, and he was 
in jeopardy of losing the next job. So we ran the assessment on him, and I found out that he really didn't have auditory memory. So, and he said in the first in the intake that he he had trouble remembering what his boss was telling him. And when we ran this assessment, I could confirm it's like, well, because there's auditory memory problems here. And we worked with him, and we tackled that and strengthened that up, and it changed his life. And he broke down in tears when he got the assessment results because for the first time things made sense to him, and he knew it wasn't just him not trying hard enough. People think they just have to keep trying harder and harder to make things work, and if this auditory and visual processing isn't working, it doesn't matter how hard you try. You can come up with workarounds, certainly, and people do. But if we can tackle the underlying causal factors of what's going on, then you don't have to work so hard. Instead of swimming upstream, you can turn around and swim downstream, and it just makes life so much better for everyone. Everyone wins. When we find this and we tackle it and we strengthen the brain, we rewire the brain in those areas that are weak, everyone wins. Everyone wins. Nice. Well, uh, a couple of my sisters were elementary school teachers, and uh, and I asked them once, uh, do you think the kids are just acting out the dynamics uh, of the home? When when we, if you were to describe your background, because didn't your mother have some background in elementary school education and? How did that impact you? <laughs> she taught second grade for 32 years in the same classroom. <laughs> and I joked that I grew up in second grade. So uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I saw many, many years of children in her classroom because I was there in the morning. I was there in the evening after my classes. And, you know, there were children that she would you know, talk about it. usually at, back in those days, this was a long time ago, uh, in those days it was pretty much a boy that couldn't sit still in his chair. He, you know, she said she'd look up and he'd be sitting on top of his desk or he'd be under his desk or he'd be leaning against the desk. Uh, he could not sit in his desk to do anything. And then there was another little boy who couldn't learn how to read. And so she took a concerted effort in him and over the summer drove him 45 miles each way to university uh, where they diagnosed him with dyslexia, which back in the day was really not heard of, but gave tools and techniques to be able to help him learn how to read. And he went on and did well. So she was quite innovative in her world, uh, seeking to solve problems, kind of did a lot of the outside of the box thinking in her day. And I think that either by osmosis or DNA, I'm not sure, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both, uh, picked that up and just really wanted to start solving this challenge that I started seeing 15 years ago when I started my clinics out here, that we need different answers. We need different ways of looking at this. We need to peel back these labels because these labels just aren't working. They don't solve the problem. We have to get underneath those labels to figure out what the root cause of this, um, behaviors that are what get targeted so much with children who get cast into the ADHD category, usually because of behaviors. And those behaviors, if we kind of, I kind of encourage us to slow down a little bit when we're looking at these behaviors and let's see if those behaviors are telling us something instead of just trying to wipe them out. Um, 
with medications or behavioral interventions, which for some children work okay and other children it doesn't. Um, for those that doesn't, it's like, let's figure out what's going on here. And that's really what we started doing is seeing these trends and these patterns and they fall across auditory and visual processing. And when we can find that, there's something we can do about it. And we call it brain training because we're just training the brain for better functioning. And with that, their lives change for the better. And I'm back to our win-win approach. Nice. Well, you know, we just went through the holidays here in the United States. I'm sure there's countless households that had the in-laws show up, and then all of a sudden there's a marked uh, increase in um, uh, behavioral patterns that aren't approved of, namely the in-laws. Can this work? No, wait, wait, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> if we could only fix our in-laws. So the... The environment the kids are in, I mean, at younger and younger ages, they, they have a cell phone in their pocket and they text each other. And 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 the idea that other students um, harass them and, and whatnot through texting. And, and I, what I'm saying is the, the noise floor, so to speak, the things that 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 uh, look for our attention has really kind of exploded in the last years. If I were a parent, if it was a parent, I was a parent, and I wanted to um, really kind of ignore the feedback of the system of the school, and I wanted to look at my child, to look at my child and say, um, what can I do with this this child? It, what I'm getting at is, I, I suspect in the classroom the expectation has gone down as far as behavior is of the students because there's so much more to distract them. When I when I look at my child and I want to give them every advantage that prodigy child. Um, intention how can we look at the the um, the mechanism of of how a child accumulates these behaviors that that don't really support them I mean we've talked about adults having behavioral problems that interfere with their employment when we look at the child how can we um, how can we understand what like shapes or or conditions them to even take on these problems? Well, most of these children don't know they're doing this is the starting point. So there isn't a cognitive process that says, I think I'm going to misbehave today, so I aggravate my teacher and my parents. They just want to get along. They just want to do well. They just want to succeed. That's all they're really wanting to do. They want to make people pleased in what their progress is. And with children who have attention problems, auditory and visual processing problems, that doesn't happen very often for these children. These children really are assumed to be intentionally misbehaving. And that couldn't be further from the truth in the experience that I've had over the 15 years of working with these children. It's far from that. 
they can become surly as time goes on and they're unable to solve their problems and the adults around them are unable to actually solve the problems, then problems just keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, like the young man who was a senior sitting in, in his uh, library class at school, he'd been in special education um, his whole life and decided to hack the school's computer system to change his grade. It was then that they realized, gosh, I think uh, we've got a problem here, and we didn't know this kid was a genius. Uh, so that's what happens is that the negative self-talk starts with these children. And if that doesn't get corrected, it grows. So the more negative talk we do with ourselves, the bigger that gets, the worse we feel about ourselves, the more we're going to act out because we perceive ourselves as not being as good as, as someone else. And that's very devastating uh, to children when they start down that path. I mean, it's devastating because it, it typically gets carried on into adulthood, and that's when we see a lot of societal problems where people don't feel good about themselves and take actions that aren't in anyone's best interest. So when we put labels on the the behavior as being bad or, I mean, uh, the, the language, I guess, the language we use to talk about some of these conditions can be as detrimental as the condition itself if the child takes it on as a sense of self? Well, it's absolutely true, and that's what we tend to do with labels, is we tend to make the person into the label. So you have ADHD. It's like instead of saying, gosh, you know, this child has some behaviors here that seem to indicate something's going on, it's like we've just labeled this child as being, what they're going to hear is that they're somehow damaged. And it's part of why a lot of parents try and stay away from the label of ADHD or any other kind of diagnostic labels is they really don't want their child categorized. They don't want that on the school record. Uh, and coming at it from this angle of auditory and visual processing stays away from the labeling, which I prefer. I've been a psychologist for decades and rehabilitation counselor for longer than that. And I've never felt like the diagnostic system does much to help us other than maybe qualify for some insurance here and there or get us in the door somewhere. But it doesn't really tell us anything about the person. And people will take on those labels. And I've had many, many parents say we don't want, I don't want my child hearing any of you know the diagnostic criteria here because I don't want that in his or her mind. We just want to find the solution and support our child in the best way possible so that they grow up with a healthy self-esteem and self-confidence. Uh, this other kind of thing really can demoralize children. Uh, sometimes the labels are needed, the diagnostic conditions are labeled needed, and I'm not against all of that. I'm just talking about this from the standpoint of attention and auditory and visual processing problems that I think we have to step back a little bit from just automatically labeling and categorizing people because then they become the label, and they're not the label. They simply have a situation that they're needing some help with, and if we can take it from that vantage point, uh, I think it changes the narrative and it gives us really more room to navigate to find solutions. Well, then, you know, what about the parent that, you know, raises their kid and, and a preschooler and the, and the kid hasn't gotten to school yet and from the, quote, house dynamics, unquote, there's no problem. You know, junior is fine. And then you send your kid off to school, and now there's structure. Now there's uh, an environment that the, 
the kid hasn't been exposed to. And for perhaps the first time, the parent's getting notifications from the school saying your kid's hyperactive, your kid's this, your kid's that. That can kind of catch a new parent off guard. What are some of the th things that parents can look for when their kids are a toddler and not in school yet? I mean, what, is there a kind of a, a litmus test or a, a way to see if if your children or child is having problems assimilating? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's a little bit of a, you know, a caution here because children should be allowed to be children. So we have that piece. And I think sometimes in schools these days, we're so concerned and rightfully so in, in many ways um, that this child isn't able to sit still. And maybe a five-year-old isn't supposed to sit still for hours on time or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or an adult. Uh, an adult, yes. <laughs> I think of myself when I'm on a plane, a long-haul ride, you know, <laughs> I have a little bit of trouble myself sitting still there for a long time. Right. So uh, I think part of it is just really trying to reacclimate ourselves to what is normal childhood behavior. In the past, I think we had a lot more physical activity for children. Uh, children, the parents are really good. You know, they're out, they're playing, they're in the backyard. They have all kinds of sports activities. There's a lot of action going on, which sometimes can be too much of that, sometimes maybe not enough. Uh, part of what really has, I think, kind of started bubbling up for some of these children is uh, when it comes to the point they're in school and they're not able to really demonstrate that they're learning material. Again, there can be a whole lot of reasons around this, so it's it kind of said with a cautionary tale because I do believe we have to look at each child individually. We can't just put everybody, it's not everybody in the pool here. But, for example, if there are observable behaviors where it seems like no matter what someone says to this child, this child can't hang on to the information. Right. So you say, okay, go do this and this and, you know, pick up your shoes and go clean up your room and then go outside and feed the dog and the child heads to the playroom and does something different. <laughs> now, that could just be typical child behavior where they'd rather go play than do their chores. But if it's kind of a consistent situation where no matter what it is, this child really is struggling to follow through. That could be some indication that there may be some auditory processing challenges here. There could be some memory problems. And this is so important to understand. This has nothing to do with intelligence. These are not typically cognitive or intellectual challenges, but these children can look like they have that. And it's a case in point where I, if I diverge for a moment, I think there may be a lot of children who are receiving services in school who may not be receiving the correct services in school because we're kind of on the wrong track. Uh, so for other types of problems, maybe they're the ones, this is a child that loses everything, can't find anything. Maybe they trip or bump into things. And so maybe they have some trouble with eye-hand coordination. Maybe when they try to write, again, if they're at the age where they should be able to formulate their letters, if everything is so messy it can't be read, 
if they are having trouble pulling information from the whiteboard and getting it on a paper that's organized, these could be signs of really what I've come to learn are visual processing problems. So these processing problems I've really kind of broken out into two categories, auditory and visual, and then within that there are a whole host of conditions that can be um, identified once we know what we are looking at. And that's really the key here is to decode these behaviors in a manner that informs us and kind of the, the strategy that's been used, I call it more the traditional approach, the target is to get rid of the behaviors with the idea that we just get rid of the behaviors and everything's going to work well. Well, if that was working, we wouldn't be where we are today with six or seven million children on medications to control their behaviors and countless behavioral interventions and countless failures in children's lives and parents and teachers pulling their hair out like you were discussing and they don't know what, people don't know what to do. And so really the key is, well, let's kind of dissect this a little bit, pull it apart, and maybe we need a different narrative here to understand what we are seeing. Maybe there's something else going on that's contributing to the behaviors. Maybe the behaviors are a symptom of something else, and that's where my work has evolved into. Right. So what you're saying is, um, well, to uh, give it back to you, so to speak, uh, it doesn't serve us just to say, well, you know, Johnny's a really distractive presence in the class. We're going to just stamp his forehead with ADHD and and put him on Prilene 12 and hope the side effects don't, you know, <laughs> compound the problem. In, in other words, to to really take the time and and work with the child and and drill down where the um, disconnect is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and part of this is just kind of a different way of looking at what this ADHD label or these behaviors are saying, and people need help, and that's really to kind of wax a little bit over to uh, the book. The reason I wrote this book is to help parents and teachers better understand these behaviors. You know, I, I go back to my mother. You know, she saw this little guy, and he was displaying behaviors in the classroom. And uh, to her credit, she decided to investigate. It's like, what's going on? Why can this little boy not learn how to read? You know, why is he not able to pay attention? Why are these other things going on? And when they figured out that he had dyslexia, then there were different strategies that were appropriate that once those were implemented, it helped him and it relieved a lot of the pressure that people were feeling because parents want to do well, teachers want to do well, and children want to do well. So theoretically, if everyone's wanting to do well, then why are these things not working? And because it has to be something else. It's not because people aren't trying. They are trying, they're trying hard to understand this, but if we're on the wrong track, I've often said, it, you know, the wrong diagnosis is not going to lead to the right intervention. So if we are thinking we're chasing after one thing, but really we're dealing with something else, then whatever we're attempting to do, if we're chasing the wrong thing, isn't really going to result in lasting changes. 
And that's one of the um, points, too, that parents and teachers can start looking at is that for children who have auditory and visual processing problems, generally speaking, they want to be happy. They want parents to be happy with them. They want teachers to be happy with them. And when this, pardon me, <coughs> when that isn't happening and all the traditional interventions, such as, you know, maybe negative reinforcement. So perhaps I take something away from this child. Perhaps we take away a recess. Perhaps we take away a toy. Perhaps we limit their involvement with certain activities or such. And if all of those things have been tried and, and more than once or twice or three times or however many times and it hasn't resulted in lasting change, then maybe there's something else going on. Maybe we need to pull back and take a look at this and see, is this child actually struggling to hang on to what we're asking this child to do? If I can't remember what I'm being asked to do and I'm a child and I feel kind of powerless toward the adults around me because I can't really speak up and say what's wrong, I'm going to have behaviors. I'm either going to withdraw or I'm going to act out. Right. Well, now, perhaps the traditional um, reflex is to, you know, medicate or get them on some kind of a whatever. Um, let's talk about your book and um, your techniques and your results. So, again, your book is Solving the ADHD Riddle, The Real Cause, and lasting solutions to your child's struggle to learn. So tell us about your book and how it how it approaches this situation. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, so what I began discovering a good 10 to 12 years ago when I was using this 20-minute assessment and we were pulling out these auditory and visual processing challenges, and we were really looking at this. And at the time, I was still kind of going down the road of the ADHD diagnosis until I learned better, um, is that when we can pull back this narrative and really look at these behaviors, these behaviors are telling us something. They're telling us a lot of information. The traditional approach is just to get rid of the behaviors. The alternative approach that we've used is to understand the behaviors and then do this assessment that helps us identify these areas across 37 different ways the brain is processing auditory and visual information. And when we can dial in, we can find those areas of strength. They tend to be a strength-based uh, professional who's looking at uh, kind of what's working, but then we also have to understand those areas that aren't working. And the areas that aren't working really just need training. This is the beauty of understanding what's really going on, because if we are able to identify that there, in fact, are auditory visual processing problems, then there's actually something we can do to train the brain without medications, without really these behavioral interventions, without a child having to remember what they're supposed to do, when they can't remember what they're supposed to do. So we just kind of go around all of that, and this works very well for trauma as well, which we can talk about a little bit later. 
is that by using a type of biofeedback that we've been using, which is EEG biofeedback, electroencephalogram, which is why we say EEG, is that we're measuring um, biological information. So in this case, it's brain waves. It's very similar to the concept of biofeedback, where we maybe put a sensor on the finger to measure our pulse and Maybe we're measuring our respiration, and so we're getting biological information that's fed into a computer. And if I breathe deeply, relax my muscles, I may find that I change my heart rate and I change my breathing rate, and maybe I feel more relaxed. Well, that's biological feedback, which was shortened to the word biofeedback. Neurofeedback is the same concept. Neuro means brain, so we're looking with brain feedback. So in a nearly instantaneous manner, we're able to read the brain waves and the child or the adult interacts with that information in the form of what look like low-impact video games. And by setting up a training plan, which is what these, quote, video games for their training programs are, then we set this up. We do 30 minutes two or three times a week. We do 20 of those, which equals 10 hours of brain training, they would come back and we reassess in the areas that have improved, and then we uh, alter the and update the training plan for any remaining areas that a person may need to train. And the good news about the biofeedback process is the brain is actually learning how to function differently. So we're strengthening the neuronal pathways in the brain, and once those pathways are reinforced and strengthened, they tend to hold. And we know this through lots of research. This has been around since the 1970s. Um, I will say there are different kinds of neurofeedback out there we can get into. I talked about that some in the book. But the bottom line is that once the brain learns something, it tends to hold on to it. And it's kind of, I equate this to being a child and learning how to ride a bike. We can learn that in childhood and perhaps not be on the bike for 20 or 30 years or more. We can still get back on that bike. We're still going to have some memory of how to do this, how to balance ourselves and move ourselves forward on that bike. And that's really an example of how the brain learns. Everything that we are doing in our daily life, we've learned through the process of repetition from learning how to walk, to hold a pen, to running, to driving, to eating, to whatever we're doing, being an astronaut, whatever it is. We have had to train our brain for that. And what neurofeedback, this biofeedback form does, is just shorten the learning curve. So we condense it down. It's structured. Um, it, <laughs> I kind of equate the structure of this a little bit like, you know, with that exercise bike you've got in the back room. <laughs> Uh, you have to use it <laughs> for it to work. So, Damn. Uh, <laughs> so the key to this is consistency. <laughs> right. And, and by having people have scheduled appointments, we have a person assigned to work with them regardless of where they're sitting. And so I can do this with people, you know, outside of my clinic that can't drive here. We can do that because we have the remote capability to do so. And having that structured environment and, <clears throat> and the ability to coach people, to guide them on the process and support them and 
uh, give them, you know, that extra attention to where they're striving to reach their goals, then it tends to work. We've had pretty good outcomes with this. So, I mean, do they wear a cap that measures their brain waves and tells them if they're in alpha or beta or comatose or, I mean, how's that work? <laughs> well, if they're comatose, they're probably, <laughs> they've got a whole other problem. <laughs> um, so we use sensors. Uh, we don't use the cap. There are systems out there uh, that do that. Our system is uh, more, I think more specific to each person, not that those aren't, but I've been using the system for 15 years, so I'll admit I don't delve into a lot of the other systems. Uh, this system actually is unique, and I do have an appendix in the book that speaks to the uniqueness of this system, which it does something that, as far as I know, um, most other programs or neurofeedback programs are not doing systems, which is uh, what we call a zeroing out the facial artifact, and the term artifact simply means facial muscle movement, such as eye blinking, tongue movement, facial muscles, that some EEG equipments will misinterpret those signals and read them as EEG signals, which are the brain signals, so the data isn't necessarily as clean as what it might need to be in order to measure progress. Uh, so I, I didn't put all that inside the body of the book because I felt like some people don't really care about that, but then there are going to be other people who do really want to understand uh, the differences that do exist in neurofeedback systems. So we have a system where you do one or two channels, which just means there's either one or two sensors placed on the scalp in certain locations, and that's based on some of the um, you know, reported information experiences that people are having, as well as uh, if we have found some hyperactivity in the brain, uh, we tackle that. And the beauty of this is it's just brain training. So it's literally a program where you are training your brain. There's not anything being injected into you. There are no signals being administered to your brain for true neurofeedback. So the industry has taken a stance uh, about neurofeedback, and there are programs out there that do administer low-voltage signals to the brain. Uh, the industry has really stated that they don't consider that to be true neurofeedback. It's a form of treatment, but true neurofeedback is just a one-way system. So there's nothing going back. It's like an EKG that you go to your doctor. They put a little uh, tab on your body here and there to measure body information. Same concept. We're just measuring brainwave information, and that goes into the computer. And then if I'm having difficulty with paying attention, then there are certain types of brainwaves that I may not be manufacturing enough of, and there are some patterns in there that um, exist, but everyone's a little bit different. Uh, so we are measuring that. There are ways for a person to see that feedback. And if I'm being inattentive and not paying attention, I'm drifting off, then I'm going to have trouble winning the programs or winning those you know, video games, training programs. I'm not going to score very high. And so if I'm wanting to score high, I'm going to have to pay better attention. And the brain literally learns how to do this. This isn't something you can really think your way through. It's literally the brain figuring out how to do this. 
and it works. I mean, the beauty of this is our brain is always figuring out things. <laughs> we don't necessarily tell it that, okay, I need to squeeze my fingers together in order to hold this pen, in order to write this word. Our brain's learning how to do the muscle memory of sorts physically, and there's a type of muscle memory that we can think of in a similar manner to how the brain gets trained, and the repetition is what works with this. Well, we've had uh, brain specialists of every kind on this show over the years, and they pretty much all say that um, the brain is responsive at any age, in any condition, that it'll it, it's it's much more pliable than uh, earlier medicine ever thought it was. Oh, absolutely it is. This whole concept of neuroplasticity, which I put some sections in the book about because it's so important we understand this, is actually the concept of neuroplasticity just means the brain's flexibility to continue to learn. And that was actually brought to us back in 1949 by Donald Heave, who is a Canadian psychologist. And it's taken this long, really, for us to kind of figure out a, how to measure that and B, that everyone has neuroplasticity in their brain. Uh, I actually have a neurofeedback station um, embedded in a retirement center now because senior citizens are asking for these services so they can either tune up or kind of keep what they already have. They don't want to go down the proverbial drain uh, just because they've hit a certain number on years that they've been walking here on the planet. Right. You know, they, want, they want to keep going well and doing well and being sharp and functioning and um, good for them. You know, that's exactly what we should be doing. Well, uh, so if I'm somewhere else on the planet and I don't have a – uh, institution or uh, clinic down the street. Um, what can I'm, what can I do? Like uh, if I if I were to look in the uh, do a search on the internet and look for um, neurofeedback uh, counseling, what are some of the things I would want to look for when I'm selecting uh, a clinic to work with? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that question because I think it's very important for people to understand that there are different types of systems out there, and I think getting educated about what the system does, and that's a lot because people will, um, you know, they've got different reasons they're using different kinds of systems. So we have the capability of working with people. So we have the remote neurofeedback. Uh, I work with people. Um basically kind of wherever they're sitting because we're we're just doing brain training. We're just simply helping people um, get stronger about this. So you want to find people who actually have been doing it for a while, um, ask the questions of what uh, kind of success they have had. Obviously, if they're licensed in some kind of capacity, they're not going to be able to give you names, but what kinds of testimonials have they published on their work. I mean, I think that's one thing. And certainly, you know, have they demonstrated that they're doing what they say they're doing? And, you know, really paying close attention to that. Are they using systems that uh, seem to be more 
uh, geared toward really doing the brain training. There are a lot of other systems out there that do different kinds of activities. Uh, the one I describe in our in my book and the systems that we've been using, again, goes after the artifact, and I'm not sure there are a lot of folks out there that are doing that part of it. Uh, uh, but it doesn't mean there aren't valuable um, aspects that can be gained. So it depends on really what's going on. What kind of assessment do they do? How do they measure change? Because I think that's a little bit of one of the struggles in some regards is that it's hard to measure change if you're not doing some kind of an assessment that tells you where you are when you're starting, tells you where you are maybe at the midpoint, and tells you are where you are when you feel like you've reached some goals. I've run across clinics that um, tell people they have to do 100 sessions and that they're going to have to keep coming back forever. Well, I don't know that that's been my experience. It certainly hasn't been what we do. Again, there isn't value. And some of that is really paying attention to what do you want the outcomes to be and how are you going to know that you have made progress. Because sometimes with neural feedback, and I've had this happen with children, I've had it happen with adults, the change can be subtle enough over time that you might not remember what it was like before. So perhaps there's someone around you that says, you know, I've really noticed your memory's improving. I had, a, I had a guy tell me one time, and he said, well, he said, you know, I know things are working better. And I said, okay, how's that? He said, well, <laughs> he said, uh, usually his wife would call him on the way home and ask him to pick things up from the grocery store. And he would get home and only remember two or three or miss half of what he was supposed to bring. And he said that night, he'd, the night before he'd um, gone to the grocery store and got home and had everything she'd asked for. He said, I think it's working. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what about age? I mean, so if you're working with a preschooler or kindergarten or, you know, uh, elementary school and then there's middle school and teenagers – uh, how does how does the system perform over the the span of years? Mm -hmm. Well, right now in my clinics, we have a three year old and we have a ninety three year old. So I, I, we pretty much cover the gamut. the The measure for me is can the person be at a computer for thirty minutes um, and you know follow the instructions and follow along. So we've worked with children with mild to moderate autism. I've actually done intakes on children with severe autism. And in some cases, really, they're not able to because they can't follow the instructions. Uh, their behaviors may be really dysregulated that they try and break the equipment or, you know, they're throwing things around the room. And I've had that happen. I've, you know, I have my glasses pulled off my face at times. And so those are situations where you know, the behaviors would need to be more regulated. But uh, a three-year-old is kind of young for us, but I will always meet with the parents and say, well, we won't know until we put your child at the computer and let's see what we can do. And it's surprising sometimes that these little ones really can do it. And we've got a little guy that's doing it right now. Typically, we start at about the age five or six uh, for most folks. And... Um, I always like it when we get the children in the elementary school because if we can tackle this when they're in the elementary school, and maybe that's the influence of my mother, I don't know, <laughs> but if we can tackle it when they're in the elementary school and then we can set them on the right trajectory, 
then middle school, high school, college, and life become easier. So we've changed the struggle level for this child. And maybe the, you know, these children who aren't able to do well in the classroom are really kind of targets at times for bullying. Right. So we have a lot of that happening by the time they get to middle school. Uh, they could have been on the receiving end of quite a bit of bullying by the time we see them at that age. And then by the time they get to teenagers, um, if we, if they've had a really rough go of it, we're going to end up with a fairly surly teenager on top of the hormone problems, on top of just the regular teenage years that are difficult. But then you add all of this on top of that, and you've got a child who could be at risk. And we've had those children come through. We've had parents call and say, yeah, my child's suicidal. Can you help us? And it's like, well, let's get on in here and figure out what's going on. Well, um, you well, know, we've been able to work with those children and get things turned around. And uh, even in adults and, and perhaps in their later years, and, you know, if if they're having marital conflict, it can be because, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, were you talking to me? <laughs> and 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 a lot of times we we think that we just have to tolerate or put up with. Now, um, to to look at these tools, because you said you're working with like a 93 year old, the, the adults can listen. I mean, even uh, self recognize attributes within themselves that they might want to engage this program with. Now, you mentioned trauma earlier. Can you can you talk to that? Absolutely. I think it's so important for people to understand the impact of trauma. We've had so much of it, and we're just seeing people still digging out after the pandemic, the isolation, the stress, the trauma of all of that is just a complicating factor that we've seen a big uptick in depression and anxiety. Uh, which are all indicators of kind of an ongoing traumatic experience around this. And then I've worked with a lot of veterans over the years. You mentioned in the intro, I actually I was at the VA in Wisconsin uh, working there uh, for a year when I was in my doc program. And really, I look back now and I think, gosh, if we had this, what we could have done uh, for a lot of those veterans. And at that time, we were dealing with folks who were, you know, from Vietnam still. Right. Uh, so the part of the brain with the trauma factor is this is part of the amygdala system. We don't go too far into this, but it's the amygdala system that gets uh, wired in a way that just can't shut off uh, for a whole host of reasons. I could, you know, <laughs> do a, a full class just on how that happens. But suffice it to say that when that system becomes dysregulated to the point that the person has no control over how they are responding or limited control because that system is in the fight or flight state a lot of the time in some cases for people it's 24 7 and what we can do is what i told the veterans when i started working with them you know, many years ago here <clears throat> is that what's happened is that survival mechanism in the brain has switched on and it really has forgotten that it has an off switch <coughs> pardon me it forgets it's forgotten that there's an off switch and so what we do is go in and reinstall the off switch so that that system's functional when you need it 
you're getting ready to step off the curb and a car's coming around the corner and it's surprising you and you need to get out of the way, you need to move. But you don't need that kind of hypervigilance 24-7. You don't need a dog barking at 2 o'clock in the morning to shoot up out of bed in sheer fright. And the veterans that I was working with at the VA, there was a veteran who um, his days and nights were reversed because that's what happened to a lot of folks in Vietnam. And so he was on high alert at night. And he would be, he was in a rural area, thank heavens, and the police understood what was going on. But he would go out, he had a bunker in his backyard, and he would shoot off firearms in the middle of the night because he was perceiving that people were coming after him because he was having flashbacks. That's trauma, and that's, that's really a debilitating situation, and children are debilitated with this. People have domestic violence and car accidents and all sorts of conditions in just the pandemic. Um, certainly uh, the news can traumatize people a lot. If you're watching a lot of the news programs, it's very traumatizing for some people. They can't manage that very well. We can tackle that. We can help that person get that part of the brain calmed back down so that you have it when you need it and it's turned off when you don't need it so you can have a better life. Nice. Well, now, how about some uh, uh, case studies or examples? In in other words, uh, perhaps I'm uh, listening to the show and and I'm a parent, and you know, Junior's got some behavior that I I don't know how to even put in a compartment or whatever. In other words, can you share with us some um, uh, cases that um, were perhaps not so obvious or j- just give the listeners some ideas of, of the effectiveness of your program. Mm-hmm. So it cuts across a lot of walks of life, as I've mentioned, from age to socioeconomic conditions to you know skill sets. And it's so important to understand that most of this isn't about intellectual ability. So one one situation that comes to mind is a, a young teenage girl. Um, her uncle worked for me in a different program, and he came to me one day, and he said his niece, they just felt like something was going on with her. She was, I think, maybe 15 at the time. He said she's really pleasant and just very quiet. Uh, she won't initiate conversations, but she'll answer people, but kind of minimally. She wouldn't really talk a lot to people. She was very quiet, uh, but they kept saying she's so pleasant. She's very sweet, and we just don't know what's going on, and we feel like she really isn't living to her potential, but we don't know what to do. So she came in, and we ran the assessment, and on this particular girl, she didn't have the ability to respond to either auditory or visual information. And here she was in high school. And so she had been secretly floundering for years. And when we used the neurofeedback and helped her, she's one of the ones that stands out the most that I wish, and I would never do this, but I wish we could have done before and after pictures of her because she changed so much that by the end of it, she did not look like the same person. Wow. She she went from kind of a grayish kind of look, just a very dullness in her eyes, 
uh, wouldn't really make a lot of eye contact. And at the end, <laughs> she was a bubbly, jubilant teenage girl who was ready to take on the world. <laughs> <laughs> she was, it was just remarkable, the differences that we saw in her. And she wasn't going to stand out in a crowd anywhere. She was going to be very quiet, and she had been. And what had happened at school is because she wasn't causing any trouble. They didn't want to fail her or cause any difficulties there, so they just kind of kept moving her along. Right. She wasn't learning. So it was just this quiet kind of complacence that was happening around her. But her family knew something was wrong. They knew she was capable of more, but they could not figure out how to bring that out in her. And until we got our brain online, it wasn't going to happen. Well, uh, the, the whole notion of, you know, vitality, her vitality lit up. And yeah. and holy crap, I mean, adults, adults, you, you, you walk around in the public very long and it's like half of them are walking zombies. And, yeah. and I, I think we're all suffering from, a, from a lack of vitality, perhaps, lack of, because um, I like to uh, daydream um, what, like I said in the beginning, the the metric of what a quote healthy unquote adult is, what does that look like? And I don't I don't wanna take too much time, but um passion passion for uh uh expression and and like and it it just struck me when you mentioned how much that girl uh responded. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. And we see this so often. Um, you know, we see children who uh, really are presenting almost as angry or frustrated or having temper tantrums or such. And if we find that these children have these auditory and visual processing problems and we do something about that, what we see is those behavioral problems just melt away because this child can do, they can demonstrate who they are. They can demonstrate that they are smart and they start believing they're smart because part of what happens with the system, and it doesn't matter what age you are, I've worked with, I had a gentleman come in who was in his 50s uh, some time back, and how he found me, I still, I should have asked him at the time, but I didn't, uh, but he was telling me in the intake that he was on the verge of losing yet another job, and what he said was, you know, he has, he knew he had trouble remembering what his boss was telling him he needed to do, and when we ran the assessment, it's like, well, yes, you are, because your auditory memory doesn't exist you know you're not able to track on this and so we worked with him and when i gave him those assessment results he literally teared up he just kind of broke down because for the first time in his life he didn't think it was because he wasn't smart he realized there was something else going on and i think of how many people are on the planet that think it's an intelligence situation when it really isn't it's this it's auditory and visual processing problems which is why i just so want to get the word out why I'm so grateful to you for having me on your program so we can talk about this and really let people know that there could be something else going on that they really have sensed there's something different about them if we want to use that word but they kind of know they've had to struggle more they've had to work harder in school I've had people tell me you know they're in school and they're reading paragraphs three and four and five times because they can't remember what they're looking at well, that's a processing problem. It's not an intelligence problem, generally speaking. 
So if we can get the word out, if people can learn that there's something different going on here, we change the narrative. We change how people feel about themselves. And one of the amazing things about neurofeedback is because the person's using their brain to run the computer. <laughs> That's a pretty self-empowering situation when you realize your brain's strong enough to run a computer. <laughs> right. Well, now an hour can go by pretty fast. It's time to shine the light on you. Tell us about your book. Tell us about your programs. Imagine I'm a listener. How do we get in contact with you? What what kind of people do you look to work with? Um, What could I expect? And spell out your web page, if you would. Oh, thank you so much for that. And so the website is very simple. It's my name, C-O-N-N-I-E-M-C-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S.com. So it's ConnieMcReynolds.com. On that is the link to my book, which can be purchased on Amazon. And so there's the paperback version, the ebook version, and I did the recording of the audio book myself. So you get my voice on the audio book. And then there is also a contact um, form on there. So you can fill that out. I ask people to include their phone number. Um, If you're outside of the States, then we can probably figure out something or an email I would have. Include your email. Uh, I can connect with you. And I I do like a 15 to 20-minute free consult just to answer questions that people might have on that. Um, There's also a brief assessment that's free up on the website. So you can kind of start there you want to. So there's about, oh, I'd say seven conditions there that might help a person determine if the, a child or themselves has auditory visual processing. And within the book, at the end of the auditory chapter and the visual chapter, is a checklist that people can go down and just identify whether or not they have some auditory visual processing. Most people have a little bit of both. Some people have one and not the other, though. Uh, so those are all the ways to get a hold of me. Um, uh, the intake process is an hour and a half process that we can do again, whether it's Zoom. I do Zoom here with people right here in this region when they don't want to drive in and deal with the traffic here. So we are really good at doing Zoom, uh, particularly after the pandemic. I think we all uh, really developed some skill sets <laughs> for that. Uh, we do Zoom, and so we'll do the assessment. I do the intake, the assessment. I go over the results at the time of the intake. So by the time we wrap up that hour and a half meeting, you know what's going on. You're going to have answers to the questions that perhaps you've had for years for yourself or you've had for your children. You've got that, and then we use that information to develop a training plan. Typically, it's two or three times a week. Those are 30-minute sessions. We do 20 of those, which equates to 10 hours of training. And then we come back and rerun these assessments. So we're evidence-based. And that's you know, kind of what I was alluding to earlier when you're looking for a practitioner. It's like, what measurements are they going to use to determine progress? How are you going to know? Because this is brain training. So how do I know that I've actually made changes? Some people are aware. Some people aren't. Right. Well, wonderful. Uh Connie, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I I hope it's helped your listeners, and I'm certainly available uh, to answer questions and and really provide consultations 
I do help parents at times with children and advocacy as well in the schools. When we run the assessments, we can look at accommodations that might be appropriate in the school as well. So there's a lot we can do. Very nice. The, the topic tonight has been solving the ADHD riddle, and our guest tonight has been Connie McReynolds. So Connie's talking about working with adults, too. I mean, why put up with frustration within yourself? Like she shared the example of the older man that was having problems with employment. I mean... Sometimes we feel like we're in a corner because we don't know of what options we have. But what I really like about her technique is it's evidence-based uh, decisions that they look at the results. And and so it's not just, uh, you know, do this and crush fingers and good luck with that and we're getting close to the end of 2023. What the hell? <laughs> and I bet 2024 has got even more for us. Holy cow, what an exciting time to be alive. Hey, here you are, the listener, at the end of the show. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. This is why we do it, is for you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Until next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to a New Human Living broadcast. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Let me ask you a question. How many times during today, this day, has your heart and soul had direct communication with you? Our egos, left unchecked, will easily consume all of our thoughts and consciousness as we go throughout the day, where we really are living an ego-led life. But our ego cannot even comprehend the vision our soul has for us. If you want to increase your personal power, make space throughout your day for your heart and soul to inspire you. Citizen King, The New Age of Power, is a book I wrote just for that. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.